Uh, this morning, I thought about going downstairs to our Trinity Kids classes and taking two very important surveys, questions to ask your kids about some very vital information. I'm super curious what the results would be, but I'm hoping that maybe this morning you can save me the effort and the legwork by just telling me what you think your kids would say. Or if you don't have kids, what your, what your, uh, what your thoughts on this are based on your own experience and opinion. So uh, my first question on the survey to the kids was going to be this. Uh, what do you call the place over in New Jersey that has some sand and a big body of water right next to it? Is it A, the beach, or B, down the shore? Um, so if you are A, raise your hands, the beach. All right, God bless you. If you are B, down the shore, wow. We might be 50-50 on that. Okay, good. Here's the second question. Uh, and I got to admit, um, this is totally a pet peeve of mine, but my love can cover over a multitude of your Grammarly sins, okay? So here's the second question. Uh, what is that clear liquid that comes out of the fountains that we drink with our meals? Is it A, water, or B, water? So if you're A, water, amen. If you are B, water, So if we were downstairs, the kids would probably be on both sides of the issues just like you were. Why is that? Because they have spent their entire lives observing you, and now that they're old enough, imitating you. It's what kids do, right? They see us and they imitate us. For better or for worse, their observation of us leads to imitation of us. The reason my kids say water and your kids say it the wrong way is because they've observed me and so they imitate me. If my kids grew up in your home, they would probably say it like you, God forbid. So it's, it's because we closely observe, uh, what we closely observe, we will likely imitate. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. So our dress habits, whatever you're wearing this morning, is what it is, probably because you've seen other people wear clothes like you're wearing right now, and you liked the way that it looked. Maybe you saw it in the mall or on social media, and so we buy something similar. The way you do your job is because that's the way your trainer trained you up to do your job. The way you cook is probably related to how you observed a mom or a dad when you were young, cooking and baking years ago. When I was playing ball as a kid, uh, we would stick our tongues out when we were playing basketball because that's the way Michael Jordan did it. We imitated what we spent time observing. Michael Jordan on a basketball court with his tongue hanging out. Uh, if I would have never have taken the time to watch the Chicago Bulls in the mid to late 90s, I would never have known to stick my tongue out when I play basketball. Because we cannot imitate what we do not observe. Today, we are going to see that diligent observation is exactly how we promote unity here in our little church. Only in this text, God is the parent and we are the kids observing and imitating our father. You can see it right there in verse 1. Look down at verse 1. It says, imitate God like beloved children. In other words, observe God and imitate God like a little kid who loves his parents because he is loved by his parents. So for a few minutes this morning, Trinity, let's, let's be kids together again. Let's look at our dad, and then we will look at our elder brother, Jesus, and we'll talk about how we can imitate 
what we observe in our pursuit of unity here in our church. So here's, here's the big idea of this text. If you're new, a big idea is basically a way you can just sort of take something portable home with you that would make sense of the entire text. Today it's a shorter text than normal, so maybe it's not as tough. But here's the big idea. Uh, Trinity's unification requires Godward imitation. If we want to be unified, we have to look at God and see how he acts. So to say it another way, this, our unity requires us to imitate God in verse 1. And then in verse 2, our unity requires us to walk like Jesus. But the underlying assumption here is that, like we've already talked about, in order to be imitators, we must first be observers. We cannot be imitators if we are not observers first. Imitation requires observation. If we want to forgive like God, and if we want to love like Jesus, we're going to have to observe those two people really carefully, else we won't know what to do. Also, it's important for us to sort of keep pulling on the threads that have tied this whole letter together. If you're just visiting today, first or second time with us, we've been working our way through this letter of the Ephesians, kind of like our practice here. We just work through books of the Bible together, kind of plod through them. And when you, when you do that, you are able to observe uh, themes and threads that tie the whole thing together. And uh, sometimes I think it's easy to just get into a rut. If you're sitting there every week, it's easy to get into a rut of seeing each little text that we cover every Sunday, like a, a silo that belongs all by itself, just off to itself. But it's not. Each little text that we cover is part of a network of interconnected themes throughout each book or throughout each letter. And so it does us well to remember or to reflect on what we've been talking about so we can put in perspective or in context what we're talking about today. So one of the primary themes that we've been circling around in Ephesians over and over and over again has been unity. This theme continues today in the text and it progresses as well. So Paul here, he's trying to coach us up with some practical take-home tools. They're going to help us pursue unity amongst ourselves for God's glory in the world. And one of the major takeaways here is that we are called to intently observe the ways that God and Jesus have treated us. Observe closely the way that God and Jesus have treated us and then treat each other in the same exact way. Remember, so far in Ephesians, most of the time in Ephesians has been like if you view it as, a, as an iceberg, everything's been under the water. It's all like the, the rich theology. And now the, the iceberg is breaking the surface and we are seeing on the surface, how we ought to interact with one another. It gets really practical here. Uh, but to know and understand how God has treated us, we must observe. And I mean like really observe God. Observation. Not like a third, uh, a third grade boy glancing in the mirror on his way out to school when he's late for school. Not that kind of glance in the mirror observation. No offense to you third grade dudes if you're in here today. But more like a groom standing in the front of the room when the, when the doors pop open in the back and his bride starts to walk towards the front of the room. We want to observe like that guy observes, really taking the time to observe. That's what we're after this morning. So we're going to take our time, slow down, and really look at what God the Father and God the Son have done for us. And there are two primary things that bubble to the surface in our observation of this text. Forgiveness and love. Forgiveness and love. We observe God's forgiveness and we're called to, uh, to imitate it. And we are, uh, observe Jesus' love and we're called to walk in it. 
Uh, walk in it is just another way of saying imitate it. So God and Jesus are these sort of like paradigms that we're supposed to reference back to repeatedly to see if we're doing it right, to, to see if we're living together correctly. In the way that we love and forgive in our homes or in church, we ought to take on the same characteristics that we see in these two verses here in Ephesians 5. It's like those architectural drawings that Dan Lloyd, I tried to like make eye contact with you, but I just lost you. Oh, there you are back there. It's like those architectural drawings that Dan Lloyd draws for those contractors. Those contractors consult the sketch that he draws, and then they build a little, and then they consult it again, and then they build a little bit more. They observe the drawing, and they imitate it in real life in this beautiful home. We, too, consult the paradigm of God's actions toward us, and then we build a little bit, and then we consult again, and then we build a little bit, and then we consult again until we build a beautiful life that looks like God and that looks like Jesus. Okay, so in the context of unity here at church, let's take the on-ramp into our text from the tail end of what Tyler covered for us last week at the end of chapter 4. This is intentional, us on-ramping from the end of chapter 4, because verses 1 and 2 are intimately tied to what came before them. And does anyone know how I know this? How do I know verse 1 is tied so closely to verse 32? Anybody have a guess? Yeah, therefore. There's a therefore there. Look at verse 1. That first word uh, is therefore. Uh, I've given this lesson ad nauseum at at this point. Um, But anytime you see a therefore, you ought to ask yourself one question. Why therefore is that therefore therefore? All right? It's actually a really important question to ask as you're reading through the Word of God. Why therefore is that therefore, therefore? It's showing you a dependency or a bridge. And it's really important that you sort out what the two thing, what that word is connecting. That's where all the magic happens when you take your time to read the Word slowly. So when you're reading your Bible on your own, maybe tomorrow morning, and you see a word like that, stop for a second and see if you can figure out what two ideas it is connecting What concepts is that word a bridge between? So look down at Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now skip to verse one. one. Therefore, be imitators of God. In other words, that therefore is there to say, you do this forgiveness stuff too, just like you observed in God's treatment of you. You saw God do this, therefore imitate him by doing the same thing. Let your observation of God's forgiveness lead to imitation of his forgiveness with the saints in this church. This is what promotes and nourishes unity. So the first thing that we'll see today, just two points today, forgiven sinners forgive sinners. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. I think it's important that we gain some agreement here on what forgiveness really is. Like, what are we talking about? It's a common word, common concept, but what is this? The other day, I was confessing a sin to one of my uh, girls, and I told her that I was sorry for what I had done, and she said, it's okay, Daddy. It's okay. But it wasn't okay. What I had done to her was quantifiably wrong. I had sinned in my attitude against her and against God. What I did that day was one of the reasons Jesus had to die. So I tell my kids in our house often, we don't do things We don't say things, and we don't laugh at things in our house that put Jesus on the cross. 
What I did was not okay. So saying it's okay is not forgiveness. But also turning a blind eye or suffering in silence is not forgiveness either. For example, if you right now, even under the sound of my voice, if you're a wife in an abusive relationship, whether that's physical abuse or emotional abuse, you do not need to put up with that in the name of forgiveness. God is not calling you to that. To that. Forgiveness is not silence. Forgiveness does not fail. It does not shy away from calling sin out for what it actually is. God's forgiveness takes sin seriously, and so should ours. So here's an attempt at a definition of forgiveness. It doesn't shrug off the gravity of sin. Instead, it sees it, it names it, and then it covers it in humble love. And listen, this is good news for us as Christians because because God takes sin seriously, we can forgive freely. It is because God takes sin seriously that we can even have the, the chance to forgive each other freely. And here's why. Every sin that has ever been committed against you will be justly punished. So take that in for a second. Think about that. Every sin that has ever been committed against you will certainly be justly punished. God, in his holy justice, is incapable of sweeping even our most mundane, ah, never give it a second thought kinds of sin under the rug. He can't. It's just not in his nature. He is holy, and he is righteous, and he is just. Someone will pay for that sin, every sin. It will, and if it's you that has committed the sin or they that has committed the sin, it, it, it will either be you under God's righteous wrath in eternity, or it's going to be Jesus on that cross. One person will pay for that sin. It will either be you or it will be Jesus. If you're in here today and you're new to Christianity or you have no idea what that's talking about, it would be a privilege and a joy to speak with you about that. It's the, it's the realest truth in all the world. You do not have to pay for your sin. There is a Savior who has done that for you. But make no mistake, every sin, because God is just and holy, every sin will be paid for. It's on us to decide who will pay for that. And by God's grace, I hope that you choose Jesus, suffering for your sin in your place. For Christians, though, one hopeful implication of this reality that every sin will be paid for is that even though many of us have been outrageously wronged, you can rest knowing that in the end, that wrong will be justly dealt with. So as you consider those who have wronged you, maybe someone sitting in this room, maybe another Christian somewhere else, maybe you even have a catalog flipping through your brain right now of how this person has repeatedly failed you or frustrated you or sinned against you. Maybe there's more rage built up inside of you than you know what to do with. Can I encourage you to let Jesus be angry on your behalf? His anger, unlike ours, can actually be trusted Release your debtor and breathe again. If you're living in a cloud of bitterness this morning against another Christian, will you leave it at the foot of the cross today? I urge you to do that. Will you leave it to Jesus to ensure it is justly dealt with forever? Our observation of God forgiving us should lead to our imitation of forgiving others. So if we want to enjoy a unique curiosity-inducing kind of unity here at Trinity Church, we're going to have to be a forgiving church. 
A church that is willing to name sin, to confess sin, and to call it sin. Say, say what it is. And a church that is willing to forgive that sin in each other. So real quick, I want us to notice the, the bonding agent of this forgiving unity. You know, in every recipe, especially in baking recipes, there is typically a bonding agent. Lots of times the bonding agent is eggs. And if you forget the eggs, you won't have a very cohesive product. We had some blueberry muffins like this the other day, and I'm pretty sure that we, we put, a, I don't think that we put enough of the bonding agent in, that we is just going to be as benign as possible. You will never know <laughs> who that we was, but I don't think we put enough of the bonding agent in. And when the bonding agent, the bonding agent is missing, the ingredients fragment and they crumble. Uh, so the bonding agent of our forgiving unity is a unique humility brought about by a common dependency, Christ. This is what binds us and bonds us together like eggs in a recipe. And here's what I mean by what you see up there. Notice the functionality of how we even get forgiven uh, back in chapter 4, verse 32. And it's on account of the relationship, the nature of our relationship with Jesus. We are united to Christ in a way that makes us acceptable to God. We are united to Christ in a way that makes us acceptable to God. It says, like, it says it like this, God in Christ forgave you. It doesn't just say God forgave you. Slow down and read it carefully. It says God in Christ forgave you. It says that there's a prerequisite for forgiveness. It says we need something outside of ourselves for this forgiveness. All of us in here share this common need. And because we share this common need, it should remo remove all reason for, for boasting or one-upsmanship or pride in how we interact with each other. That Jesus is the foundation underneath our forgiveness should do at least two things for us, just really practically and functionally for us. Number one, it should remove any reticence of offering forgiveness, and it should remove the stigma of asking for forgiveness. All of us in here, we have equal footing at the cross. So forgiveness should be like free-flowing currency here at the church. Forgiveness is a free-flowing currency. We shouldn't be reticent to offer it because we ourselves have been offered forgiveness in Jesus. And we shouldn't be afraid to ask for it either. There should be no stigma about asking for forgiveness from a brother or sister in the Lord. It is to be expected that we sin against each other. We shouldn't be shocked when this happens. It's what we do, hopefully increasing less and less as we live longer and longer and walk with the Lord. But we sin. We're humans. But we should also be quick to seek forgiveness when we do sin against each other. And over time, over the course of a lifetime of a church, as we continue to exchange the Christ, Christian currency of forgiveness, we'll find that this forgiveness actually nourishes our unity. For instance, I was in a conversation with a member here this last week, uh, or two weeks ago, and during the conversation, my tone betrayed my actual words. And there was a rift in the relationship because I... I was unwise and unloving with the tone that I chose. It wasn't a big rift. He probably could have gotten over it without a conversation. But a few days later, I looked him in the eyes, and I told him that I was wrong, and I asked for forgiveness. I said, I sinned against you and against God. Will you forgive me? 
Thankfully, the person I confessed to forgave me. He's sitting in here today. Just look around. Whoever has the reddest face, you know who I sinned against. But where there was disunity between us, forgiveness healed that gap created by my unloving tone. Forgiveness nourishes unity, and it closes the gap. So seek it and offer it often. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. God is so serious about forgiveness that anyone who refuses to forgive in this way is described as missing the gospel entirely. Matthew 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What does this mean? Does this mean that we merit anything by offering forgiveness? No, it does not mean that there is any merit to our forgiveness. But if we do not forgive, it betrays our own understanding of how staggeringly, amazingly, we've been forgiven ourselves. It means that if we refuse to forgive, we will not be forgiven. And if we will not be forgiven, we will not join Jesus in heaven because heaven is the dwelling place for forgiven people. And why is this? Because refusing to forgive others reflects your own poor understanding of the staggering debt that you have been forgiven. So this morning in your own heart, if there's someone, an image of someone that you are refusing to forgive, maybe a person in this church or a spouse or a child, I would urge you to spend a few minutes, maybe even this afternoon, to consider deeply the forgiveness that you enjoy from the hands of the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. Forgiven sinners forgive sinners. Okay, so a synopsis of what we heard so far. God's forgiveness of you is the paradigm and the grounds for your forgiveness of others. What you observe in God's forgiveness of you, imitate in this church. It's the paradigm, it's, the, it's a paradigm in that it shows you how to do it fully and tenderly, we find back in Ephesians 4. And it is the grounds in that it is the foundation on which your forgiveness stands. You forgive because you've been forgiven. But there's another thing to imitate here. Love sinners, love sinners, because God the Son has loved us. Loved sinners, love sinners. Again, let's define our terms here. So love can mean so many different things to us. It can have a million different flavors. I love the eagles. I love ice cream. I love my church. I love the beach. I love my kids. I love water. I love my wife. You know, all those are different examples. We, we use that kind of language all the time. We love things. Uh, these examples are slightly different manifestations of love. So what is the sort of love that we specifically are being called to here in Ephesians 5? Which flavor of love. Well, verse 2 tells us, uh, it says to, to walk in love as Christ has loved us. And then it explains the specific flavor. It's the kind of love that resulted in Jesus giving himself up for us, the second half of verse 2. Walk in love like Jesus, Paul says. So we've circled round and around this analogy of walking with Paul. He's used it so much so far in the letter. Uh, and he'll continue to use it. Basically, when we're talking about Jesus, love, uh, the way Jesus walked, we're talking about the way Jesus lived and loved. Um, 
if you remember from a few weeks ago, we were talking about the different gates we all have, like G-A-I-T, gate, the way that we walk. Some of us walk with our toes in, some out, some of us with floppy wrists, if you remember. Uh, if, if you don't remember that, uh, or you weren't here a few weeks ago, uh, no big deal. But we all have different distinguishing aspects of the way that we walk. Well, Paul adds another distinguishing feature to our Christian gate here, and it's love. This idea of walking in love means that your life should be marked by love, walking perpetually in love, routinely rather than just occasionally. Your whole entire life should be marked by a loving interaction with the people you see in this room. He says, walk in love like Jesus did. It's just another way of saying, imitate Jesus. Observe Jesus, then imitate Jesus. And we are called specifically here to imitate Jesus' sacrificial love, a giving up of himself. Obviously, most ordinarily, it will not be to die for each other, right? In most circumstances, it will, uh, it will just be something that costs us something, though, some kind of sacrifice. Jesus' love for us costs us his life, so it tracks that our love for each other will cost us something. So what, what areas of service in this church are costing you anything? Where are you giving up something for the good of another? Even just on a personal level, do you have any friendships in the church right now in which you are the sacrificially loving one? You're laying down something you want for the good of somebody else. This is the paradigm This is the blueprint that we look at and then we build. Then we look at, then we build. Look at Jesus, self-sacrificing love. I don't know if the sacrifice for you will be a financial one or a time commitment or an emotional commitment. I don't know, but sacrificial love nourishes unity. It draws us together. And the undertow here is to commit to love that costs us something so that we imitate Jesus' love and continue to promote unity among Jesus' people. Verse 2 tells us, if you look at it, that Jesus loved us in such a profound way that it was like a, a giving up of himself, just surrendered all of himself. He gave it all up to the point of a staggering, sickening, violent death. But listen, as a self-proclaimed gospel-centered church, we like to call ourselves that, right? Who spends an hour and a half every Sunday in an hour during the week in our community groups, and hopefully more than that in our homes at the dinner table or whatever, circling round and round the gospel. With all of that, I wonder if sometimes the spectacularity of Jesus' sacrificial love just misses us. just goes right by us. It doesn't move us like it should. Like those for, who have lived for years on the beach, down the shore, might not appreciate the beauty like those of us who only get to visit it infrequently, right? It just becomes normal to them. Why? Because they see it all the time. This morning, let us not allow ourselves to fall into that same trap of just something that we see all the time and are comfortable with. This morning, let's try to look with fresh eyes, like never seen this before kind of eyes, at the jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring, worship-inducing love of Jesus. When is the last time that you were just struck by the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice for you? Sometimes we appreciate amazing things. We have to look at lesser things, be amazed by that lesser thing, and then track back to really feel the wonder of the original thing. 
So in that vein, this past week I was reading a story that Chuck Colson used to tell about a group of American prisoners of war during the Second World War, war, world war who were made to do hard labor in a prison camp. Each guy had a shovel that he would be handed out, handed each morning that he would use just to dig all day. And then at the end of the day, each guy would bring his shovel back and hand it in. Well, one evening, 20 prisoners were lined up by the guard and the shovels were being handed in and the shovels were counted. And the guard only counted 19 shovels and turned enraged to the 20 prisoners demanding to know which one did not bring his shovel back. Silence. No one responded. The guard took out his gun and said that he would shoot five men if the guilty prisoner would not step forward. Well, after another few moments of tense, tense silence, as you can imagine, a 19-year-old soldier stepped forward, the age of maybe some of you college students in here right now. He stepped forward with his head bowed low. The guard grabbed him, took him over to the side, and he shot him in the head and, and turned to warn the others that they better be more careful than he was. When he left, the men counted the shovels themselves, and there were 20. The guard had miscounted, and the boy had given his life for his friends. Can you imagine the emotions of that room once the guard left? The emotions that must have filled their hearts as they knelt over his body. In the five or ten seconds of silence, the boy had weighed his whole future. A future wife, an education, a new truck, children, a career, a vacation to the shore. And he chose death so that others might live. To love is to choose suffering on behalf of others for the good of another. I think one of the reasons this story hits us so hard is because the boy was 19 years old. If he had been an 80-year-old and the other's 19, we might say, ah, oh, that was a beautiful act of love. But with a full life behind him, it would not feel like the same kind of sacrifice when your whole life stretches out in front of you. What Jesus gave up was infinitely more than what that 19-year-old man gave up. And what Jesus earned in his death was so much sweeter for you this morning, too. Not to minimize the soldier's sacrifice, but it was just a mere whisper of what Jesus has done for us. So consider the life that Jesus sacrificed for you. And this morning when I say that kind of sentence that probably just, you know, rolls right off of us, consider the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Don't hear me saying y'all. Don't hear me meaning the church collectively. Don't think of this you as the plural, though it is. Think of this in the singular. Jesus died for you. In other words, this wasn't just a general death for the general church. It was a special love for you. With the eyes of Jesus' heart fixed personally and particularly on you as an individual. We ought to recite Paul's words from another letter and absorb them into our bones. Genesis 2.20. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul had rightly internalized and then also personalized the aim of Jesus' sacrifice. We can rightly say that Jesus gave himself up for Josh. 
amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Personalize it this morning. For those of us in here new to Christianity, we're exploring for the first time maybe the, the claims of this ancient book. You might be asking yourself, well, why, why did Jesus have to die? What was the purpose of all that brutality? Well, earlier in our study of Ephesians, we learned that we were born by nature, Paul says, we are by nature children of wrath, children underneath the wrath of God. When we were born, we were underneath God's wrath, which might be a startling truth to realize this morning. But this means that we are born in sin, and because we are sinners, we're born under the penalty of sin. Every day, this claim is a little bit easier to believe, isn't it? That the world is infected deeply with sin, with some sort of evil that somehow just seems to keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. In God's economy, all that sin, our little sins, Putin's big sins, all those sins, all those breaches of God's law bring on a penalty. And what is that penalty? As unpalatable as this is in today's society, and I get it. I understand that this is not a popular thing to say. But we want to say what the word says, right? We want to stick with God's word. As unpalatable as this is in our world today, the penalty is that we all deserve to perish and be punished in hell for our sins. The Bible calls us eternal death. Our only rescue, according to the Bible, is this. Someone has to die for you. Verse 2 says that Jesus gave himself up for you. He died to pay your debt. So if we were going to be saved, if we are going to be saved from death, we are going to have to be saved by someone else's substituting death. They die in my place. They'll have to die in our place like that soldier died in the place of his colleagues. So Jesus' love for us moved him to come as a substitute sacrifice in our place. Verse 2, Christ gave himself up for us. But again, this is just a, it's a paradigm, right? It's the blueprint. A blueprint for us to look at and then dream up creative ways to, as loved sinners, love sinners. Love sinners, love sinners. So, uh, by way of synopsis again, Jesus' sacrificial love for you is the paradigm and grounds for your sacrificial love for others. What you observe in Jesus' love, imitate in this church. And then to remind ourselves, God's tender forgiveness of you is the paradigm and grounds for your tender forgiveness of others. What you observe in God's forgiveness, imitate in this church. So this has mostly been kind of theoretical so far. So let me just touch on some potential, two potential life, real-life applications of these two ideas. Forgiven sinners, forgive sinners, love sinners, love sinners. I mean, my fear is that when we hear that we need a model for our forgiveness, we, we need, when we hear that we need to model our forgiveness after God's forgiveness, our minds go immediately to the big, bad sins that we've committed or that have been committed against us. But let's not allow ourselves to get away with that kind of laziness this morning. It wasn't just somebody's murdering of someone or unjustified war or rape. Those weren't just the things that put Jesus on the cross, though they were. It was a harsh word. It was a cutting text message. Or someone neglecting to follow through on what they've promised you. 
Perhaps they've said something, uh, that they do something for you and you forgot and you take it personally and you get hurt by them or frustrated at them. As I was thinking about myself uh, this week and considering the things that I routinely am having to ask forgiveness for, it's normally boiled down to one of two things. It was e- it's either the words I say or the attitude with which I say those words. I mentioned earlier that my tone, my attitude was out of line uh, in, a, in a conversation a couple of weeks ago, but that happens with Miriam and the kids too. Probably happens all the time in your life. Whether it's a colleague at work, a stranger on the phone, whatever. These are the moments that Jesus died for. And they're the moments that we need to request forgiveness for and then receive forgiveness for. Our attitudes and our actions are constantly, our attitudes and our words are constantly on display. So there's going to totally be ample opportunity in our church, so much opportunity for us to dish out forgiveness because we talk all the time and we always have an attitude that comes behind that talk, whether it's good or, or not. So don't be surprised when there is ample opportunity for forgiveness among us. Somebody's going to say something. Somebody's going to forget to do something. In those moments where you're frustrated, rehearse your own massive need for forgiveness and then offer forgiveness too, freely, fully, tenderly, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Okay, so two quick real-life applications. You know, we've been talking so much about offering forgiveness to others. You might have forgotten that you need forgiveness from others. So maybe as a, a counterintuitive uh, application this morning, let me encourage you to seek forgiveness frequently. Seek forgiveness frequently. Seeking forgiveness for you in your life is probably going to be a muscle that has to be strengthened, at least if you're anything like me. It's a flabby muscle right now, probably. It's not comfortable or natural for any of us to ask forgiveness as often as we should. None of us come out of the womb hardwired to ask forgiveness for when we've sinned. So let me encourage you, when you've sinned against someone, go out of your way to pursue forgiveness by identifying your sin, stating who it was against, and then asking to be forgiven. Probably many of us will have most opportunities for forgiveness in marriage. It's been said that a good marriage is just a union of two good forgivers. A marriage is just a union of two good forgivers. Marriage will absolutely expose our greatest flaws. So don't be defensive. Just know that this is coming, both from you and from your spouse. Husbands, wives, are you actively, vocally pursuing forgiveness from one another when you routinely fail one another? I think it's fair to say that this practice in, in, in our marriage has been one of the most critical to health and flourishing in our marriage, asking frequent forgiveness. And here's what it sounds like. Hey, Miriam, that was bad. That was sin against God and against you. I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And I will warn you, those are some of the hardest words I've ever had to muster up the courage to say. I don't want to say them ever. I've never one time wanted to say them. There's some kind of weird threshold in my heart, and maybe you have the same experience, some kind of weird threshold of humility that I have to cross over in order to actually state those words out loud. But I'd also say that though those are some of the hardest words that I've ever had to say, they have resulted in some of the sweetest fruit that you could ever pick off the vine of marriage as well. 
So it can't be, and it must not be, that we're only granting forgiveness. We should also be asking for it, too. As frequently as we sin, a rolled eye, a raised voice, a cutting comment, a petty indifference to a spouse. Seek forgiveness frequently. And let me just encourage you to do this, parents, too. Let me really encourage you to model this for your children. Let them see you asking for forgiveness from a spouse. Let them hear those words. When you sin against a kid, ask for forgiveness. Help them see and experience the safety that there is in Jesus. How else will they learn? And if you're embarrassed about how often you are seeking and asking for forgiveness, just think of it as giving your spouse or your friend an opportunity to imitate God's forgiveness. By sinning against them and seeking forgiveness, you're actually doing them a favor because you're letting them imitate God to you, all right? So seek forgiveness frequently. And then for, for loved sinners, loved sinners, here's one application. Join our gatherings sacrificially. Let me just encourage you to view our gatherings through the lens of sacrificial love. I bet a lot of us come in here, come through those doors on Sundays, hoping to be served. But what if we flipped that upside down? What if we came in with with eyes turned to sacrifice, to the kind of love that costs us something? So let me just encourage you, you know, categorically, think through these things. Sacrifice with our dollars. Sacrifice with our time. Sacrifice when you see someone hurting from across the room. You really want to leave, but you know they'd benefit from a hug and prayer, a hand on a a shoulder. How about you love sacrificially by finding a face in here that you don't recognize? They might be sitting alone. Imagine how that feels in a big gathering like this. It would feel good. Go alleviate that anxiety in them. If you walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up, it's going to look like and feel like a sacrifice which means that you're going to be in situations that require inconvenience and pain. I wonder, in your, in, in your life walk with this church, are there situations in which you are experiencing any kind of inconvenience or any kind of pain? This is the paradigm, the blueprint for our love. I'd encourage you on Sunday mornings on your way here, when you hop in the car, John, this is one of John's encouragements to us a few weeks ago, use the first 30 seconds in your car to just pray that God would allow you to put those spectacles of love on. That you would view your fellow believers through the lens of sacrificial love and pray and ask God that he would allow you to be creative that morning in the gathering to love well the other saints here. Our mutual love and forgiveness will nourish our unity. Final word here. For better or worse, our kids talk Uh, like us because they've observed us talking. They imitate what they observe. So what is it that you're imitating these days? Or maybe the best question is, what is it that you're observing these days? What are you becoming by the things that you are beholding? If you're an incessant scroller on your phone, you're being shaped by what you behold. If you're obsessed with politics, you're being shaped by what you behold. If you're always talking about other people's shortcomings, you're being shaped by what you behold. You're just going to see brokenness everywhere instead of God's kindness. So let's 
Spend this week observing like a groom on wedding day. Spend this week observing the tender forgiveness of your father and the deep, deep love of your Christ, more than all these other things that we just talked about. That way you can imitate them. Get up early. Delight in the Lord. Instead of clicking on Insta in a free moment, open up your Bible app. Instead of playing another podcast, pump some tunes into your ears, into your mind and soul that will delight you in God. And all of this will nourish unity among us. Trinity's unification requires Godward imitation, especially in the spheres of forgiveness and love. Pray with me. God, thanks for a chance to just look deeply into the mirror of your word, to revel in who you are and in forgiving us and then giving yourself up for us, Jesus. I pray that you would help us imitate these actions amongst one another in really practical ways. I pray that you give our community groups this week um, functional ways to, to rehearse how we can do this better for one another. And uh, I pray that you just help us in this. We need your spirit to give us power. Help us not forget that it is the spirit who strengthens us and gives us power to make space for this kind of living in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.